Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today and thank you for taking time to be with us. Today's program is sponsored by Hiawatha Broadband Communications, an FTP provider that is committed to connecting rural communities and economies to the world. Check out the Hiawatha Broadband at www.hbci.com. Uh, we're here to provide info. Uh, <laughs> take two. We're having a very silly moment here in the moment. Just uh, hang with me, audience. So we're here to provide useful information and insights to help communities, companies, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband to everywhere it needs to be in America. All right, one little uh, minor housekeeping item. We're uh, not taking call-ins today, but you can join us in the live chat room that's happening um, at the show's uh, blog, talk, radio homepage, uh, our homepage, not the shows, and we have um, ourselves up and ready to go. Today's guest is Lori Sherwood, who is the Broadband Program Director for Howard County, Maryland, and the lead cat herder for this 10-county, one Maryland broadband deployment that's going to bring some 1,200 miles of fiber infrastructure to the state of Maryland. Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Craig. It's good to be on your show. Sure. Well, you know, you got you got a lot going on. I think there's a lot that our uh, audience can learn from from all the craziness that you're working through down there in Maryland. And so let's uh, let's have at it. You know, I mean, you know, I, I sort of describe this as the you know the ultimate cat herding job because you've got what dozens and dozens of cities and towns scattered across 10 counties, and you got to get them all on the same page, and you got to move this project forward. How do you get all these people together and moving forward? That's a good question. Um, so for, for starters, I think maybe if I go back sort of a little bit in the history, you'll have a, a good understanding of where we came from. So when, sure. um, when the broadband stimulus first was announced, um, every, you know, communities all across the country, as you know, are interested in finding out more about it. And what we quickly realized was that every um, jurisdiction and all of our local partners and friends were thinking along the same lines we are, and we very quickly realized that um, jumping into the fray by ourselves it pro- would probably not bear the fruit of pulling everyone together into one coordinated application. Mm-hmm. So we um, looked around us and we talked to our different um, local jurisdiction partners and we pulled this consortium of 10 Maryland jurisdictions together that comprise the, the center part of the state. And, um, and we put in an application for, uh, for stimulus funding in the first round of the BTOP, um, of the BTOP uh, competitive grant applications. And we convened our first meeting on this in um, March of 2009. So it's been almost two and a half years we've been working together. But one of the key things that I think really helped create our success was that from the very beginning, what we said to every community is we we um, will take the lead and we will work on um, on the application, but that we want every community to participate, be an equal, and tell us what you would like to see in your neighborhood, in your jurisdiction. And so what we did then is we sort of pooled all the plans together and in the end came up with eventually what became 
um, the One Maryland Plan and the Intercounty Broadband Network, which is what we are now, the, the consortium of 10 local Maryland jurisdictions. And we're actually a sub-grantee of the larger statewide One Maryland um, broadband uh, grant, but we are two-thirds of the project. So a sub-grantee at two th – so that's why, okay, when they say the, the project was awarded $115 million, but then your bio says you're responsible for $75 million. So that's Correct. $75 Correct. million is the sub-grantee part? That's, yep, and then we have some additional 20-some-odd million or so in matching funds. So the overall project for Central Maryland is um, about $95 million, and then we're working in conjunction with the state – who's responsible for the build-out in the other rural um, parts of the, of the state, the other counties, so that at the end of the day, this project, um, at, through its entire statewide initiative, touches every single county in the state. Holy for holy. That's, that's pretty serious stuff. And and so now was that the original? I mean, you, you talked about how the ten counties kind of pulled their part of it together but was the state working on something similar either at the same time or before the stimulus came out? And along the way, you, you know, the two bodies kind of intersected and figured out that in the end it would all be one massive state project? Yeah, that's sort of what happened. There were a couple of competing plans, um, big plans for Maryland in the first round. And um, at the end of the day, uh, neither one, none of them were funded in the first round. But um, NTIA sort of sent us a clear message that, you know, they, they would re like to see us combine our projects and pull everyone together into one um, application. And mm -hmm. so we, we, which is how we um, came to be in the second round working together as sort of a, a statewide umbrella project. But what we did was we essentially took our first round project, the 10 counties, and just um, uh, integrated it with the rural county plan and then moved forward with that, which was what was eventually funded. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. So now what were some of the main challenges uh, working out the logistics there, the kinks, as it were? Well, some, some of the logistics is um, now now that we're uh, a year into the project, we received our, our official grant award in September of 2010. Um, and so we've, we've almost been working on this for 11 months. One of the first logistics was um, – working through the environmental assessment that was required by NTIA. And mm -hmm. that was not something that we were really uh, new going in that we, we would have to do. So, um, And essentially, we had a six-month time frame to work on a statewide environmental assessment of every single route, every single site, um, and overlay it with all of the environmental maps and the highway in the historic preservation data and wetlands and turned it into the federal government so they could assess what impact this would have on the environment. Mm -hmm. And um, until that was approved by NTIA, we could not move forward with construction. And so, um, which concerned us because with a big statewide project in almost 1,300 miles across the state, holding your hands for six months on construction is not, you know, makes you feel a little uneasy. Right. But, now, yeah. oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but we managed to um, turn it in on time and finish it uh, on time. And so now we are free to move about the state and construct as, as according to our plan. So. Uh -huh. Now, the word I've been hearing from a number of people is that the, the wait for the environmental study is probably the biggest initial hurdle. Is that what you've been hearing from your colleagues or your counterparts in other projects? 
Oh, de yeah, definitely. Um, it's definitely the biggest challenge, and because you have to submit, if you're a bigger, if you're a bigger project, you have to submit everything under one environmental assessment. So you can't bifurcate it and say, look at this first and prioritize. Everything has to be approved at once. So if there's one area of the state or one area of the project that is of particular concern, it can hold up the rest. Right. So, um, but we were, but yeah, I am hearing that from from other projects as well that 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 part was challenging. Mm -hmm. um, the the um, well, let me ask another question. Uh, you know, clearly a lot of people in the state saw a need for this. Was it because of some particular failure in the marketplace? I mean, how did you? all decided you really wanted to pull the trigger. I mean, what was your alternative or what was the what was the, I don't know, inspiring factor here? Well, and at least in the central Maryland jurisdictions, we had um multiple jurisdictions that have been building out their own municipal broadband networks for years. Um some some were further along in that than than others in the group, but um ultimately stimulus was an opportunity to sort of give a shot in the arm to those long-term projected plans. So in Howard County, for example, we had begun our fiber network build, but it would probably take us 10 to 12 years or more to build out the entire ring. Um, what this enabled us to do is to condense that into a three-year time frame and interconnect with the other jurisdictions to provide more opportunities for cost-sharing, resource-sharing, um, savings, and other efficiencies that we would not otherwise have on our own. Mm -hmm. So, so we have all the. Oh, I'm sorry, Craig. Go ahead. I was going to say this. So there was a definite uh, immediate impact to the government itself, or the the local governments themselves, which was a main factor. And then I guess other benefits kind of came on on top of that. Yeah, I mean, part part of what went into our calculation was a um, cost savings and government efficiency, mm -hmm. um, because we are stand to save as a region something along the lines of estimated thirty million dollars a year. Um, in taxpayer money just by virtue of having our own networks in place. We are going to be making direct connections to our schools and our libraries and our public safety agencies so mm -hmm. that they can get the bandwidth they need for for their own internal needs um, without having to pay more or not get what they need. Um, so that was that was a big factor was making sure that as local governments we were interconnected to each other and that we directly connected to um, the anchor institutions in our region. And at the end of the day, across the state, this network will directly connect to 1,006 anchor institutions, but there's thousands more that are already on existing networks that will be joined by this um, entire network once the gaps are filled in. Mm -hmm. Now on, what was it, last Wednesday I had... Uh, Santa Monica, California, on the show, and uh, Jory Wolf, their CIO, was talking about the benefits they identified early on, uh, which were heavily government-oriented. They didn't really start offering the network services out to businesses until a few months into the, the, the project. But the point that I made during that show was that at the city level, you know, if you look to government communications First and government operations and how the broadband network can impact that, you often can find enough cost justification to move the project forward because of money that you'll save and efficiencies you'll gain and so forth. If we uh, expand that that thinking out to you know a multi-county project, uh, 
do you see the same, um, I don't know, basis for moving forward? In other words, there is enough uh, of an impact on the government that almost that alone could justify moving the project forward. Um, I, you know, I think every community has its own different uh, characteristics and, and different models, and I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I think, you know, taking account into what we're doing here in Maryland where we're providing direct services to our schools and libraries and our government anchor buildings, but we are not going to be directly providing services to homes and businesses. Mm-hmm. But be- because of the open access requirements of the grant, through NTIA, we have um, we are going to be leasing our dark fiber to the private sector, and we've already reached out to numerous um, pub- private sector companies who are interested in working with us to build that last mile. Mm-hmm. So, so I was... think it's a it's a different model, but it's but what we found is that is that really there's an interest there. Right. But is it that much different? I mean, it sounds like the traditional, well, as much tradition as you can have in, in two years of uh, you know stimulus stuff, where where it's a it's a public-private partnership. The the counties are driving the build out of infrastructures, and it will be the service providers that drive the last mile services. So yes. it's not you know the traditional one provider one. Uh, government entity and they build it and they co-own it, but it seems like we're looking at, um, you know, you've got the infrastructure, that saves the private sector companies a lot of money because now they don't have to build that and then subsequently put that into their, you know, profit and loss sheet of, well, we spent so much, now we got to make so much. Uh, so because then their upfront cost has been reduced. But um, they can come in and offer a range of services because you've laid the the infrastructure in place. That, that's right, and um, and, w- and one of the benefits of that is that we're hopeful that some of the areas that have been unserved and underserved due to density issues and other uh, factors that they're too far away from um, from some type of private provider uh, plant broadband services will now be able to be served by a private provider who's using our backbone. Um, to lease dark fiber and then build those out into into the community. And I'm and I'm thinking in particular of a community up in um, Carroll County, where we have um, Freedom Wireless, a wireless provider who has um, very interested in working with us and reaching uh, through for wireless broadband into some homes and businesses up in that area. And we have some. We're also working with a wireline provider in Anne Arundel County called Broadstripe doing the exact same thing, where they're bringing um, broadband service to a community that hasn't seen it at all. Um, and those are two of our first uh, sort of last-mile projects that we're working on right away. Right. So in looking at the last mile linking with the, the middle mile aspect of this project, um, how are the various communities, um, I don't know, either being helped or or promoted in some way so that there is a plan in place for them to make that that connection? Uh, and, I, and I say this because there are a lot of middle mile projects that received funding, and it's clear that they're going to bring access to uh, a lot of parts of the country. But it's sort of it's it's you know part of the equation. Maybe it's you know you call it two thirds of the equation. But then, what do you do about all of those communities 
that still need to get on because in some respect you will have issues such as, you know, there there aren't a lot of them. Will the providers still balk, you know, because even though you've built out the main infrastructure and saved them that cost, they still have to figure out how they're going to build out the last part of it and get their money back for that and so forth and so on. I mean, what's the, what's the vision of, you know, bridging uh, that last mile to first mile so that it actually happens when all is said and done? Um Right now, we're having basically conversations with the providers, and um, TW Telecom is another is another provider who's interested in leveraging our last mile to reach business um, services. And um, we're working on a model that will centrally uh, help to manage that process, so that you can um, funnel in sort of the communities and the requests and try and match them up with a provider. Um, and we're and we're you know open to discussions with any providers and and we're working on developing that model and drilling down in exactly how that's going to be deployed. But there is a significant amount of interest out there from the provider standpoint already. And um, I think as we go forward with the construction, where you really get begin to drill down into the routes and where you're going to be and what that could mean for some of these providers who are looking at their budgets and their capital expenditures. I think um, that will really kind of uh, come to the forefront in the next six to 18 months. And this sounds good, but then the, the other question that pops in my, into my mind is why are there um, associations for private sector providers that are continually griping and moaning about the stimulus expenditures and overbuilding and so forth and so on when it appears that you are helping them on one hand by providing uh, a backhaul infrastructure that they don't have to invest in, so they don't get tied up, you know, capital tied up with that. Then you're putting a program in place to match uh, businesses with subscribers. I mean, basically, it's saying here, here is where we've identified for you uh, subscribers, people willing to pay money to have internet service. So why all the complaining? Why do we have that that pushback out there still? I mean, I understood it a year and a half ago, but I thought we'd be past that by now. Yeah, I don't know. Here in Maryland, I can only speak to what um, my experience is, and and we haven't um, had that type of relationship or um, feedback from the providers. We've we've had a lot of conversations with them, and I think there's a lot of general interest to see how – you know, maybe we can work together. I think they're taking a look at our project. But um, so far, we, we haven't had that experience directly here in Maryland, but I am aware of sort of what's going on in, in other parts of the country. Sounds like somebody needs to write a letter or a column or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, be still, my heart. Anyway, all right, let's talk about the how this came together because I'm I'm pretty sure there's a lot of folks out there listening whose job is you know, they've got broadband projects they've got to move them forward uh, they want to see success how how are the various planning sessions done how, you know I mean you, you talked about it briefly at the beginning mm-hmm. but we're talking um, you know ten counties I mean it's hard enough to get ten people within the same organization to get together for a meeting. So so how did you pull those people together for enough sessions to actually get this plan hammered out? Um, you, you know, it's sort of at, the, at the beginning it was sort of a force of, of will, just willpower just in terms of all of us coming together and not wanting to be left out of the stimulus pie. So uh, every, okay. everyone was 
you know, certainly willing and able. And, and um, anytime we had a request for information or needed data from different jurisdiction, we submitted a request and we got that um, immediately turned around to us. And, you know, I have to say, going through the application phase and the due diligence phase when NTIA was really examining our project, anytime we needed something, we, we got it turned around immediately. And it's a real testament to our to our counties and our jurisdictions, which are, uh, just to quickly name them, they were um, Carroll County, Hartford County, Baltimore County, City of Baltimore, City of Annapolis, um, Anne Arundel County, Prince George's County, Montgomery County, and Frederick County. And every time we needed something, we, we got it back immediately. And um, everyone just became, we had, we established a flow of communication and email communication and a SharePoint site for file sharing. And um, now that we've gotten the grant, we have a we have an MOU in place that's signed by all the jurisdictions, and we have an MOU with the state, Howard County does, um, in a similar fashion to govern the administration of the, of the grant money and the project and the implementation. But we have um, we have monthly, bi-monthly working groups that get together to help design technical standards and network design and discuss uh, technical elements of it. We have um, a, a bigger CIO uh, committee where we have the CIO of every jurisdiction sits on the governance committee and develops the plans and resolves issues on a on a um, on a bigger level. And then we have project managers um, as part of our implementation here in Howard County. We've hired about 12 people on staff to manage this project. So we are creating jobs. Uh, both directly and indirectly. <laughs> right, I, I can see that. Definitely there's a lot of activity going on. And so our project managers meet weekly with their jurisdiction that they're assigned to. Um, so we have four project managers assigned to ten jurisdictions, and they keep them apprised, and they go over plans, and they go over decisions that need to be made in their jurisdiction. So it's, it's really um, through the full involvement of, of all the jurisdictions, the MOU that we have in place, which is really kind of groundbreaking in and of itself to get that many jurisdictions to sign on to an MOU of such significance. So, But yeah. everyone is a willing partner. Right. So how do you motivate people to that level if um, there's no stimulus? Because clearly the stimulus did indeed uh, get a lot of conversation going. It got people focused on a goal. You know, it was easy to pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, did you hear about the stimulus? Maybe we should team up. Okay, those kind of conversations, I'm sure, happen a lot. Uh, so now we're past the stimulus, and we've got all kinds of other financial mayhem and craziness going on. Uh, how, how do you motivate that same level of activity? I, I think now there is sort of a, a critical time because you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the chances that we'll see another stimulus bill like we had a couple years ago are kind of slim, although some would argue it's exactly what the country needs is another infrastructure stimulus project. Uh, project. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I think really the, the message here is that you can accomplish more by working together, whether it's public-private partnerships, whether it's finding a local jurisdiction, multiple local jurisdictions who have similar goals, and banding together to apply for um, funds, whether it's private sector through grant funds, maybe the Knight Foundation, maybe the Gates Foundation is working on some things for end users and anchor institutions, um, whether it's uh, a public safety initiative grant, P6 through Homeland Security, 
and NTIA, um, there, there are still some opportunities out there. Um, uh, earlier this year, I heard of some opportunities coming down the pike in wireless, um, that there may be some grant money available coming out soon in wireless, kind of similar to what we heard, what we saw with the uh, wireline. But um, now with the economy in such a mess, I, I don't know what the status of that is. I don't have any real information on it. But just to say that um, it really helps to band together to pull a plan together to um, set an achievable goal and then go after what you need to, um, to make that a reality. And um, public-private partnerships are a really good way to forge together to make that happen. Right. That makes a, makes a lot of sense. Did it take you many days, weeks to actually put the structure for how you're working? I mean, you talk about there's, a, you know, there's four project managers, and then you have a CIO committee, and you have a number of working uh, cogs in the in the big machinery. Um, did, the, did that come together o over time, or did you guys sit down in one you know series of meetings just to put the plan together to figure out how you're going to operate on a day-to-day -day basis? It, it came together, I think a little bit of both. Um, the CIO group came together just through natural forces. Everyone coming together, the CIOs, the IT departments, those were the people that were putting together the, the plan initially. Um, so that kind of began the, the the baseline foundation structure of the governance committee. Um, and then from that, we began to see, as we were working through it, a need for subcommittee working groups to pull some of the, the granular discussions on, into a subcommittee where people who had the expertise in that area could, could talk about it. Um, and then the actual grant administration piece of it was um, came about a little bit just sitting down internally discussing, well, we know we need, at first, we need to hire a couple of these people and a couple, you know, staff and a couple project managers, and then we can move forward and we'll bring enough people on to help us manage the, the project with with consultants and other team members. Um, so that part of it was sort of more or less developed along the way, and it's still mm -hmm. developing. Um, because we're still having some of those discussions over, well, do we need to hire one more person for this task, or can we more effectively utilize a consultant? Mm -hmm. So um, the, the grant administration component of it is changing all along, but the, the foundation, the consistent foundation, CIO level group, and, and that was um, pretty much has been there since March of '09 when we started the conversation. Gotcha. It, um now would probably be a good time to to talk about um, the various stakeholders and how you brought them together. I, I get an idea. I can see how the the big umbrella of, of organization came into place. But for example, how did you do anything to help the counties round up con, uh, consensus and ideas and so forth from the various towns and cities within each of their counties? Um. Yes and and no. I, I think, as I mentioned before, some of the counties had already been building out their their network, and and right. some of this was fashioned on the on the requirements of the grant. So we wanted to make sure that public safety was included, public education, community colleges. So the stakeholders were kind of defined by the grant itself in this situation, and then really it was incumbent upon us in each jurisdiction to make sure that we were communicating with our own individual stakeholders within that jurisdiction. And that's actually one of the logistical challenges of this is, um, 
in some cases, the elected officials who were who helped put the plan together for their jurisdiction two and a half years ago are no longer there. Oh wow. And so what you have is a situation where the newer the new folks that are coming in don't have the historical knowledge and are just now learning really what this project means for their city or jurisdiction. And um and so that has taken some been challenging, but one of the one of the few constants and, and this is a good time to mention this is you know, my my county executive here in Howard County, Ken Ullman, has been a leader on this from the beginning, and he has continued to have conversations with his elected official um, uh, colleagues in the other jurisdictions. And he has actually convened a group called the um, Big Group, the Broadband Innovation Group. And it's um, a group of all the elected officials in the region that pull together and have high-level discussions on the grant, and they jump into things when we need to have conversations and need to move things along with certain agencies. But we also, the other constant has been um, Senator Barbara Mikulski, and uh-huh. uh, she has been such a champion uh, of this initiative, of stimulus, of this project, that having her guidance and help in assisting holding everyone together and on the same page has been vital. Ah yes, that's. Um, do you know if if in other states uh, the project teams were able to get similar kind of support from their respective senators? Because I have been reading in the paper, you know, a lot of comments about her involvement, and she's at the the, you know, the groundbreakings, and she's you know making the comments of support and so forth. And is she uh, like an exception, or is that happening in other states as well? Do you think? I, I think it is. Um, it, you know, uh, there's several. I know Massachusetts received several grants, and I know Senator Kerry has been deeply involved in those in his state. Um, there's definitely a divide in the elected officials. Not all understand the importance of this infrastructure and what it can mean for their state, but those that are are definitely engaged and are an asset. And, and that's actually one advice that I would give to anyone who's starting from scratch, is to engage the local lawmakers, both on a, on a state federal and local level to um, alert them of your plans because they may know of things going on or can connect you to other people. We've had some um, Congressman Sarbanes and Congressman Cummings refer you know, businesses to us who are interested in learning more. And so um, everyone, it's been a benefit to have them engaged in our project. Right. I know I can definitely see where this makes a, a big difference. And especially as there are places where this becomes a almost a hot button political issue because you have folks that feel that the government should not be involved in in a project like this even at the public private partnership level and then you have others who see this benefit uh you know the benefit of broadband being so great that why would you not have this collaboration why would you not have the the government actively involved, especially if you're doing things such as making the infrastructure easier and less expensive to to, to build out. Um, do you ever find the the crosswinds of competing partisanship kind of getting in the way? Because I feel that at a at a grassroots level, a lot of these projects are bipartisan. I mean, people look at the benefit, they look at how things are going to move forward, and they don't really get as as hung up on you know, the partisan issue, but then this thing kind of kicks into the upper universe and then, you know, you have all these comments and so forth. I mean, what what are you seeing from that? And well, Mar- Maryland is a is a lucky or unlucky state, depending on who you are, in that <laughs> we we have um, most of our leadership is, is 
part of the Democratic Party. The governor, the General Assembly, the congressional delegation um, is mostly Democratic. And, uh, in fact, when we were applying for the grant, we had a letter of support signed by every single member of Congress and House and Senate, Democrat and Republican, in support of this project. Um, and really, at this point, I, I would turn turn the topic away from um, kind of the partisanship of it, which we don't see as much of here in Maryland as you do in other states, and talk about the job creation aspect of this. Um, well, no, that, that and, makes a lot of sense. I, I bring it up as a – because there are some places where the issue and the question is how do we put that into the plan. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, we, we don't have that in other places. And like I said, in, in, in a, at the local level, it, it almost erases that because the economic benefits seem to be so great. People say, well, let's just make this happen. And and, and that was actually in, in the conversation, our conversation here is a good time to bring this up because this week I'm starting a national survey of economic development professionals to gauge their feedback on how does broadband impact economic development at the local level. So from your perspective, where, where, do, you, where do you see the economic impacts occurring? Oh, great question. So one of the things that we've we've been talking about here is the the ICBN is really an infrastructure project that has received grant funding, and NTIA will view this project successful or not based on whether we complete what we said we would do in the application. But really, right. that's not how the that's not how the community is going to judge our success. So one of the things that we've done is we've created something called the Center for Broadband Innovation, and it's a nonprofit, um, public-private partnership. Uh, independent organization that is going to be uh, that is going to work on exploring the philanthropic government educational business and cultural benefits and economic development of wide uh, widespread state-of-the-art broadband access and um, CBI is going to partner with Morgan State University and it's going to do a series of things it's going to focus on going after additional grant funds for network services to be placed on um, the ICBN network to make available to the public sector um, institutions on it, uh, potentially a cloud application store. It's going to develop a new curriculum to be taught in the universities so that when you go in for a PhD student and you're studying um, public administration, you're actually studying communication strategy, infrastructure strategy. Back in the day, and currently, they teach you all about utilities and water and sewer and, and multi-dwelling housing and affordable housing. But what is not in that same conversation is infrastructure uh, in terms of broadband and fiber and communications and what that means to a community um, in, in the public sector. And so the CBI, the Center for Broadband Innovation, is, um, is going to be focused on doing a lot of those things and also uh, putting together some pilot projects. There's going to be a pilot project um, that's going to bring gigabyte fiber to uh, 300 homes of multi-dwelling units in um, in Howard County, and we're going to study what people in those particular ha- housing complexes do with a gigabyte of service. Mm-hmm. So CBI is really is really going to be is, has established to complement the infrastructure project and take it to the next level. Right, because once these projects are built out, there always is the question of how do you get people to 
um, adopt the technology? How do you get them to maximize the, the adoption of the technology? And it sounds like the center is one of the ways that your crew is going to achieve that end. Exactly. You know, we're going to be looking at things like um, broadband adoption and telemedicine and connecting the hospitals and the services and the things that really go on the network that are meaningful for the anchor institutions and the other clientele on the on the um, network. Mm-hmm. So were there things in particular that uh, you or the different counties individually did to identify, bring in the various stakeholder groups? And, and I ask this question from the perspective of one of my original projects, if you will, in the broadband space was writing about Philadelphia's planning process, how they had just this endless series of meetings, and each meeting was devoted to a stakeholder group. And every stakeholder group got to both provide input and also get uh, an overview of a vision for what this means, what, what, what high-speed Internet access means to their respective groups. Did you have any particular programs that identify people by their stakeholder group and, and soliciting their uh, feedback and support? Um, we, we've had many discussions with different with different groups, whether it's Maryland Public Television, who is interested in providing 10,000 hours of educational content and making that available to the public schools on the network, um, to the public schools who are, are expressing to us the need for greater bandwidth to do more things, um, public safety, who has talked to us about video conferencing and um, CAD-to-CAD interoperability and other uh, public safety things that that they do and what this network could mean to them. There's nothing per se formal at this point about that, just that there have been a significant number of communications, both on a on a broader regional level and um, in, in a smaller county-by-county county basis. One of the groups that um, originally worked together that the ICBN idea was kind of born out of that was the Baltimore County uh, Regional Public Safety Working Group. And um, some some of the goals and things that they had put together and they had um, worked on establishing a plan for the region for public safety, a lot of those elements were pulled into the One Maryland uh, grant application. So um, I would say that there's nothing formal, but there's there's every day there are continuing discussions um, through with the different stakeholders and groups. Right. Now, do you have online resources developed to help pull that kind of feedback together? You know, that, that'll be one of the things that we, we just finished um, getting through a six-month period where we kind of moved the, um, moved the heaven and earth to complete procurement in record fashion time for government. So um, one of the logistical challenges was how do we manage to get these competitively bid contracts out there in a short time? And so in less than six in less than six months, we awarded ten contracts um, for this project competitively. And um, now that we're coming out of that procurement phase, we're moving into sort of the next phase of it, which is the service development. And so I anticipate that there will in in the next within the next six months there will be a lot more. Um, that we will do formally and probably uh, within our website as well. Right, okay. And I know this is one of the big challenges because 
you know, the, the logical way to bring people together and gather input is through the Internet. But the project itself is designed to bring the Internet to places where they don't have it. So it's, it's something of a marketing challenge to use the best tool that, that's out there for getting information back and forth um, while you try to build that tool. You know, it's sort of you get into like a little circular kind of frustration, I think, sometimes. And, well, and one, of our, one of our other um, partners in this One Maryland grant is the Maryland Broadband Cooperative. And they're um, located on the eastern shore of Maryland in, in a more rural community. And they have been um, sort of a great partner in helping bring the message from the rural counties as to what they need and what they would like to see as part of this project. So it's um, working both with the individual communities and then people who are kind of working on as an agent on their behalf in some ways. So um, together we kind of have managed to fill in, I think, the gap of information. But um, but you're you're absolutely right. I mean, access to the website and and the information will be critical moving forward. Mm -hmm. So we talked about the involvement of private sector um, service providers, and uh, and that's that's a very good. Um, direction that you guys are taking with that, you know, bringing them on board, introducing them to their potential customers. What other parts of the private sector are engaged or showing an interest in being engaged in this this whole broadband effort? Um well, we have the uh we have the service uh providers, the the folks who have developed applications that uh, can be used and utilized over the internet, but you need for hospitals or for business parks, and you but you need greater bandwidth in order to deploy them. Mm -hmm. So um, you have the providers, and then you have the service providers, and, right. and not just in terms of broadband as a service, but rather the telemedicine or the um, educational um, applications or some of the other public safety uh, that are being developed. And innovated in the in the private sector. That's probably right. the, the other biggest subgroup. That would make a, a lot of sense. Are you familiar with the Gig U uh, announcement uh, about a week yes. or so ago? Absolutely. So what, are, what are your? Th oh, actually, let me let me set up the audience for this. So um, Blair Levin, who uh, helped uh, architect the National Broadband Plan, and others have created a consortium 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 of uh, some twenty nine colleges and universities, and the idea is to create um, gigabit networks on those campuses that then overflow out into the surrounding communities and use them as a, I guess, a combination hot uh, or a, um, a, a combination uh, testing, you know, lab, and also providing con connectivity out to the immediate uh, community. And uh, you know, I, when I first read about that, I said, "Well, you know, this is uh, this is an interesting idea." So, what what are your thoughts? I, I think Igu is. I think it's a it's a great idea to pull together these um, stakeholders uh, on the collegiate level. There's a lot going on our universities are doing around the country, and in fact, um, CBI, who's partnering with Morgan State University, Morgan State has something that they're working on, which is called the Morgan Mile. And it, it fits a little bit into this gig you mold, but where they um, are working on bringing, giving back to the community and doing community involvement within a mile perimeter of the school. And one of the um, things that they're going to be doing is pushing Wi-Fi or wireless broadband services into that mile 
radius around the university. And so um, CBI, through the pilot projects, we have the Monarch Mills one, which is going to be bringing the gig unit, gig service to the housing units. And then at the same time, we'll be working with Morgan Mile in um, pushing out the, the broadband uh, through wireless means. Um, I think the universities are a great place for this. There's a lot of innovation going on, and it'll be good to um, pull this together so that there's a commonality and that you have people talking to each other about what they're doing so that everyone can move together with, and work together as opposed to um, independently developing what someone else may be working on. Right, and and that has a lot of good potential indeed. Do you ever... Well, it's early in the in the process for that particular project. Um, one of the questions I had in a in a separate conversation with um, with with Blair Blair Levin was, you know, is there a danger that if you approach this as an academic exercise more than a um, you know in the trenches community advancement exercise? Is there a likelihood that you might get more theoretical solutions than practical solutions? I mean, is that is that something that the community should be, um, I don't know, uh, aware of and then want to somehow, you know, make sure that what they're getting in an arrangement like that isn't theoretical but really, you know, real-world applicable? I, I think you need both components. And, um, and so one of the other counterparts to the GIGU is, this U.S. Um, Epignite pro program that's kind of uh, in a sim singular track but, sim but related to GIGU, they're working on developing gig e application development. And they're looking for universities to partner with the, the public and the private sector to come up with these applications to be pushed out through the universities and the, and the testbed networks around the country. And, and that is a case where I know at one of the um, conversations that we had in at uh, Cleveland in Cleveland when they had a conference with all three tracks was surrounding the fact that a lot of these gigi applications the problem is access pushing them out in a scalable way so that you have a prototype to leash uh, unleash in in multiple jurisdictions at the same time so how do you achieve that and perhaps by tying it together with the GIGU, you have the opportunity to begin to push out those applications for it so that it really becomes kind of a tipping point and that you begin to see more and more of these, of these practical applications being developed and utilized um, in the universities and in collaboration with the theoretical um, developers. Right. Okay. I can, I can see where that makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit here. Um, what are some of the main milestones that you have or your group has for this project? I mean, the, the first thing was like surviving the environmental study. You know, if, it's like if you can survive that and actually get the project going, that's like a major milestone. I and mean, I'm pretty sure for a lot of projects as well. Now, you've got your folks together and you've gone past the groundbreaking part, and there was a lot of publicity that came along with that. What are some other milestones that you're looking forward to with this uh, with this project? So um, we are this this month. We are exactly two years away from our our deadline date. So the the grant was a three year grant, and the expectation is that we would be two thirds complete within two years. So that would be in um, August of 2012, and in August of 2013, um, the funding expires. So we needed to we need to be complete by then. So um, our goal was, you're absolutely right, the environmental assessment was trying to get through that as fast as possible 
so that we can move forward to the full-blown engineering and construction phase. So now that we've awarded our 10 contracts, really it's just about execution. And, um, and we're at the very end of some of our other sort of logistical challenges, which is making sure that all the jurisdictions have the pole attachment agreements signed and the MOUs are in place so that you can transfer um, money for matching funds and for uh, other things. Um, and so really our goal at this point is we have a schedule and we're trying to stay ahead of that and, and include any permitting delays and build that into the schedule and try and make sure that permits are processed uh, quick, as quickly as possible, um, that we don't run into any big um, underground rock issues that will delay construction in one area over another. So we're working hard to do all of our engineering so that it's value engineering, that we're aerial uh, and on pole attachments where we, where we can be and need to be and that we're underground in the other places. So it's more of a um, of making sure that our schedule um, is workable and that it's built in any contingencies that we have, but really there's no time for delays. So all we're trying to do from a program level is mitigate the delay and move forward um, as quickly as we can so that we can have this, this um, network two-thirds complete in a year and, and complete in two years. Right, and that's looking pretty good, I have to say. What about the issue of... Um, various legal requirements and procedural requirements and so forth that may be different in different um, counties. I, I just spent uh, last week working on an article just looking at the legalities of multiple parties you know, coming together on broadband. And one of the things that a number of uh, attorneys pointed out, including Jim Baller, who you may know is very uh, you know, well-versed in broadband issues as it pertains to like the you know the legal issues and uh it would seem that one of the challenges for a project like this is if you have 10 counties and you have two or three that have particular laws or compliance regulations or whatever that um that you have to deal with but they're not the same as the other counties so there's not a streamlined process of getting sort of blanket uh you know paperwork sorted out. Have you run into any kind of issues like that? And, and, and even if you haven't, is there any advice on how to, to, to minimize some of those challenges? Um, we have run into some of those, and, and really more, it's not so much that each juris the jurisdictions have different laws or compliance requirements, because the compliance is we're all mainly working from the federal rules, but um, we're all similar enough on a permit basis that um, it's not that different. But what is different is to the level of service agreements and agreements that are in place through each jurisdiction. Some jurisdictions had all of their poll agreements in place, had all of, um, had all of uh, their, their DPW and permitting folks uh, engaged, and others didn't. And so really it's just a matter of trying to communicate the urgency of the project to the internal departments of every jurisdiction to make sure that each department of public works and that each office of law within each jurisdiction knew the requirements and the risks and the um, benefits of this project in moving forward so that you can execute those agreements if you need to in a hurry. Um, and, and so that, that was a bit of a challenge. And, and we, we worked with our IT folks and our CIOs to sort of be the, the voice um, within their own jurisdiction to get those things pushed through. 
Um, and but but it is a challenge, and I, and I guess really the um, the only way to do that is to just keep communicating to everyone the importance of what it is and what you're doing and what you need done. And and in our case, really, it, it's the time frame was was not dictated by us; it was dictated by the federal government. So. Um, in some ways, you can hide a little bit behind, I guess, the, the feds and say, hey, we're, we weren't the ones that came up with this timeline, but we have to work with it. So um, in order to be a full partner, we need your help with it. Right. And are you finding the people who are pretty much, um, uh, you know, willing to make, you know, changes and hurry things along in order to make this whole project work? We've run into some bumps in the road, but um, but yes, by and large, yes, Absolutely. So let me talk about one issue that's always near and dear to me, which is marketing. Um, yeah. One of the things I will say for uh, the One Maryland Project in general is that you guys have generated a fair amount of media coverage for the project. And since this radio show has been going on, various um, PR people have popped up who are representing the uh, different projects, which shows that they're putting money into at least, you know, doing proactive PR efforts. Um, what kind of marketing are you folks doing, and um, you know, what's your advice to others in terms of getting the marketing aspect in order and on track and moving out the door almost ahead of the project itself? Mm, that that's a that's a tough one, um, and we have struggled a little bit with that, only in the sense that. You know, we, we don't have a, a large budget for it, so we were doing what we can through outreach to the press, through uh, our own website. We've, we've hired um, one of our project uh, administration staff is, is working on the, works on the website to make sure that we're communicating everything we need to to the vendors, to the stakeholders. Um, it, it, some of it is going to is going to rely on internal county to county support, and again, kind of going back to the elected officials. You know, my county executive Ken Ullman does a good job of he understands this project and he's a champion of it, so he talks about it wherever he goes, which generates the the um, level of interest and ratchets that up. Senator Mikulski mentions this wherever she travels in the state. The governor is talking about this project, so. Really, by engaging your elected officials, you're able to have a marketing presence that's free of charge because they're out there at their events anyway. They generate the press. The press follows them, and um, and then we'll follow up with us. So I would say, you know, for anyone looking at marketing, it's it's a necessary thing because you you want people to know what's going on. It's important to the community to get that community support to communicate to providers of what services are available for them. Um, to take advantage of, um, and um, it's, but it's also important to have that buy-in from the elected officials um, who can be out there with their bully pulpit and um, really just talk about the, the project in a, in a, in a way that, that general folks understand about it. So there's really the, the two types of communications, the communication to the public and the communication to the, the businesses and the, and the um, partnership um, folks who are in, have a more monetary interest in the project. So really it's just developing a plan for both of those and how you're going to communicate that and then following through on that. Right. Are you doing anything in particular to generate and encourage the business community's support of this project? We have spoken. Um, the county executive has been to multiple um, has spoken in front of many different groups. 
whether it's the High Tech Council Group of Maryland at one of their bigger events or whether it's like a local real estate broker meeting where you're communicating the project to the real estate brokers so that they can communicate to you what they see in terms of need for greater broadband access to business parks and those things. So um, there's been a lot of meetings, a lot of um, invitations to the Chamber of Commerce for the different uh, chambers through, in Maryland, there's an organization called the, the uh, Maryland uh, Association of Counties. Um, Ken Ullman is the president currently of MACO. So there's going to be a big um, presence at the summer conference. There's a lot of businesses that attend that. So um, there's, there's many different ways that we've been engaging the business community in this project. Great. I know that sounds definitely uh, a pretty good thing to do. And again, and it's consistent with your use of the of the PR mechanism and the word of mouth and, as far as uh, generating awareness when you're working on a shoestring budget, which a lot of folks, uh, which a lot of folks are doing. And um, now, using your crystal ball, what would you say would be the the top one or two economic development impacts that this project will have? Um, I, I think one of the big ones we'd like to see is with the base realignment and closure um, activity going on in Maryland with the BRAC redevelopment around Fort Meade and Aberdeen, um, there's a lot of jobs being created by the federal government with Cyber Command at the fort, and there's a greater influx of cars on our roads. Um, one of the things that we would like to see happen and occur are the uh, popping up of more telework centers that would enable residents to and citizens to be able to work from and telecommute from areas without having to drive all the way into Fort Meade or to um, put a crunch on our roads. So I, I think that the greater access to the bandwidth, um, whether it's community centers, telework centers, libraries, um, will enable uh, innovators to stay local and um, create jobs here be able to use this network to do what they um, are doing in other places, but now they can do it here in Maryland. So I, I think right. that's really the biggest, the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. So the, and the then, oh no, sorry, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. And then I was going to say, from a um, from an end user standpoint, really, it's just getting the schools and the and the um, anchor institutions be able to share resources and share um, services and and sort of pushing them into a, a 21st century technology economy. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up, because we're almost out of time, what's the one thing, thinking about Billy Crystal here, what's the one thing you would advise communities that are trying to do multi-jurisdictional projects that they need to either do or be aware of? Um, I would say to, to work together and to communicate uh, with everyone. And it, it's, it's hard to be the, the group pulling everything together because no one is going to be ever going to be happy 100% of the time. Um, but to just let the individual jurisdictions kind of tell you what's important to them so that it's not a one-size-fits-all and, um, you know, just to think outside the box and work together to bring these collaborative solutions um, across the jurisdictions and across the different groups. So communicate first, last, and always. <laughs> exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Laura, our time is just about up. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, taking time to, to speak with me and to our 
uh, audience about all the things that are going on with the One Maryland Project, and it's been extremely informative, and I'm looking forward to uh, keeping track of what's happening there and getting updates and so forth, because it sounds like you know, you're definitely on the road to a winning project there. Oh, great. Thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure uh, being on your show and always talking with you. It's been it's been great this afternoon. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. So this is uh, Gigabit Nation. I want to thank our sponsor, uh, Hiawatha Broadband uh, Communications. They are doing excellent work in this uh, in this broadband space. I also want to thank our media sponsors, GigaOM, MuniWireless.com, and Broadband Communities Magazine. And obviously to you, our audience, for listening in, I appreciate your time as well, and I look forward to speaking to you uh, again later this week. Have a great day.